It's a delight to be back with you again. Susan and I are glad to be here. We live in Rockford, Illinois. So we drove up last evening and we'll drive home this afternoon. She will drive while I sleep. It's kind of our deal. It's great to be here. I first got to know my friend Muhammad when I would stop at the gas station, the mobile station on my corner on Sunday mornings to get a cup of coffee. I'd go in, he was the man behind the counter. Uh, he was from India. He was a uh, highly trained uh, civil engineer, but he hadn't been in America long enough to get the certification required for, uh, to practice that uh, profession. He had two jobs, actually. One was working behind the counter of the gas station on weekends, and during the week, he was a security guard at a bank. He, uh, we had good talks. I'd go in and we'd just visit for 10 minutes or so. I remember the morning that some customer, there were hardly ever anybody in there, but one morning there was a lady in there down the aisle somewhere, and he shouted at her. This is the craziest thing. He pointed to me, he goes, this man, he is my very best friend. We had them, uh, he, had, he and his wife had four children. We had them to our house a couple of times. They had us to their apartment. It was an interesting experience, educational. His wife, especially the second time she came, wore a complete burqa, completely covering her face. Their eldest son, Abrar, once in a while worked at the gas station, so I got to know him also. <clears throat> he was a very charming guy, a people person, and he asked if I would help him with a paper he was writing. Uh, he, needed, he just wanted me to check his English. He wasn't sure of his English, and uh, I said I would, and I got the paper. He came to my house. Turned out his paper was about Islam, and... Uh, so here's Pastor Lee helping him write his paper on Islam. And uh, uh, I learned something from his paper, and that was <clears throat> that um, uh, Muslims have this same story that you just heard read, only instead of it being about Abraham and Isaac, they have it as a, about Abraham and Ishmael. Ishmael is the other son of Moses of Abraham, not born to Sarah as God had promised, but to Hagar, the servant girl. The Arab world traces their lineage back to Ishmael, and thus most Muslims also. So Ishmael is their guy. I'd never heard that before. And they, uh, their writings... Um, try to explain what it says in the Bible with, uh, it was crazy reading it, how they do that. And, uh, and that Ishmael was, uh, yes, Ishmael was thrilled to be given this opportunity to be sacrificed for Allah. Uh, a couple weeks later, I was talking to Muhammad at the counter that morning and I said, uh, you know, Christians and Jews have the same story. Uh, only for us, it's about Isaac. And for us as Christians, we see in this story a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus in our place at the uh, call or the demand of the Father. 
he was speechless. He didn't argue. He didn't ask questions. He was literally speechless. <coughs> Excuse me. I was reminded in that particular moment, as I have been other times, but particularly then, what a leap it is for people to understand what God accomplished on the cross. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. This story that you have heard is the first really vivid foreshadowing of the work of Jesus as it appears in the Old Testament. There is no other story quite like it. If you haven't already turned in your Bible to Genesis 22, now would be a good time. Genesis 22. There's only one other story in all of human history like this, and it appears in the New Testament. There's nothing else like it in the Old. It was the climax of Abraham's life. It's the climax of his life. Abraham and Sarah had Isaac when Abraham was 100 and she was 90. And a good guess is that the boy, Isaac, was at the time of this story maybe, say, 13. It doesn't tell us. So Abraham was, say, 110 or 115 years old. He lived to be 175. His wife Sarah died, but he had other wives and other children and, uh, you know, quite a tribe. But Isaac is the key man. The rest of them aren't factoring into the great promises of God. You might remember that Abraham's spiritual life, his life with God, began many years before when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees. That's the region of Iraq today. And uh, this is what it says in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's a big ask right there. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We sit here this morning because of that promise. This promise set in motion what would come to be the great descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And in Jesus, the son of Abraham, we are blessed with our salvation. God put this all in motion with the birth of Isaac. But then when Isaac was, as I said, a young man, a young fellow, this happened according to Genesis 22. And notice the going again. There was going in the first story. Go from this to that. Now here's going again. Genesis 22. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love 
He's laying it on, isn't he? Isaac. You know what Isaac means, the name? He laughs. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Once God had told Abraham to leave his home and go to the land that God would give him. And in effect, God asked him to burn his bridges behind him. Now with this request, he requires Abraham to burn the only bridge in front of him. So it began in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied. It was a test. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Doesn't it seem just impossible that God would make such a request? It sounds pagan, doesn't it? Elie Wiesel, the great Jewish writer, known best for his writings about the Holocaust, wrote a book entitled Messengers of God about the stories and characters in the Old Testament as seen through Jewish eyes. He has a chapter called The Sacrifice of Isaac, a survivor's story. He says, as a child, I read and read this tale, my heart beating wildly. I felt dark apprehension come over me and carry me far away. Why would God, the merciful father, demand that Abraham become inhuman? And why would Abraham accept? I could not understand. Why indeed? Do you understand? Let's begin with this. God required a sacrifice that would be the death of us. God required a sacrifice that would be the death of us. By the way, I chose this painting by Marc Chagall depicting the sacrifice of Isaac. Why is Abraham all in red? Why is Isaac in gold? see the mother hiding back I think that's who she is back behind the tree there's a lamb there up above you can see the cross if you could see it clearly people around the cross even a little bit of the triumphal entry I think it's an interesting painting well God required a sacrifice that would be the death of us let me say a word about a burnt offering because that's what this was supposed to be a burnt offering, which sounds really awful. Um, in its normal case, it had two parts, two steps. The first step was the draining of the blood from the sacrifice. We think of that as a symbol of death. It was actually a symbol of life. The Bible says life is in the blood. 
It was a sacrifice of life to God. And it was a symbol of the giver of the sacrifices, sacrifice of their life to God. So it wasn't symbolizing death, it was life. And the burning part, once the body was drained of blood, it was burned completely. Nothing was saved. And the idea was that it was being in flames, uh, a sacrifice to God, like wholehearted. So here was a sacrifice of life in wholehearted devotion to God. That's what that was a symbol of. And that's what was supposed to happen. We sing some songs about our devotion to God. We sang some this morning. We'll sing another. That's great. But imagine how powerful it was to watch that animal and go, that's what I want to say to God about my own heart. When the blood is drained. When the body is consumed. Our New Testament education, what we know as Christians, inclines us to see in this a sacrifice for sin. But actually there's nothing about sin in this passage. There's nothing about Abraham's sin or Isaac's sin or anybody's sin. This is a sacrifice of devotion. Sin has its other stories, but this is a sacrifice of devotion, of complete devotion. And remember, just remember, there's a test in this. Other religions have sacrifices, even child sacrifices. But they were never this kind of sacrifice. They were meant to appease gods, to win them over, to get them not to be angry, or to get some favor from gods. This is different. This isn't to get anything from God. This is to give devotion to God. Now, it was terrible enough that God would ask of Abraham that he give his son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That alone is just beyond grasping. But that's not all. Because Isaac represented the hope of the world. God had said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. You will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not if Isaac dies, they won't. It'll all end right there if Isaac dies. There's not a plan B. There's not another son that would serve the purpose. If Isaac dies, the whole thing is off. That whole blessing of God falls into ashes. It would be as if God just wiped his hands like this and walked away from all of us, from the world. Yet that's what God commanded. Eli Wiesel points out that the Hebrew word for burnt offering is olah. Olah, as in holocaust. When God required the death of Isaac, all of Israel was in that boy. That was a kind of holocaust. So you can imagine why this story takes on a particular significance to Jewish people. Wiesel wrote, here is a story that contains 
Jewish destiny in totality. If, if Isaac had died, the Jews would have been eliminated before they ever started. No chosen people. Therefore, no Messiah. No hope for a God-blessed world. No hope for us. How could God ask such a thing? Fast forward. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was also, in effect, God's own burnt offering. The only, only sinless human being who offered himself in total devotion to God to be consumed by death. As Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. Well, nonetheless, Abraham proceeded to obey God. He and Isaac, along with two servants, made this journey. Three days. Ding, 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 ding. To the region of Moriah. Ding, 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 ding. With the wood on the back of Isaac at the end. Ding, 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 ding. Moriah was not one mountain, by the way. It's this way several times in the Bible. It speaks of, of, of a mountain. It doesn't actually mean one mountain. It means a little cluster of mountains. And that's what was envisioned. Moriah was that region. That's where God wanted him to go. Abraham brought all he needed, as you heard. He brought the kindling, the hot coals, the knife. And when they arrived at the place that God showed them, he prepared the altar, he bound his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar, and he raised the knife. The Jews call this whole story Akita, which means the binding. But as Wiesel put it, why would Abraham accept such a demand from God? Isn't there a limit? It was a test, remember. We're going to talk about the test here. Faith in God acts in response to the promises of God. I'm going to unpack that, but faith in God acts in response to the promises of God. Now listen, we have to assume, other people might not, but we have to believe God is good and God is loving. And what he is asking here is not inconsistent with his goodness or his love. Somehow those things have to go together. <clears throat> and as for Abraham, this is an intelligent man schooled for a lifetime in faith in ways that most of us have never been. If you read the stories of Abraham, you see these stories of how his faith is brought into maturity through failures, through promises, 
chief among them the promise that God would give him and Sarah a child in their old age when their bodies were as good as dead. And he believed God, the Bible says. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So when he gets to this point, Abraham has been walking with God and learning from God for a good while. Abraham had three days to think. I think that's significant. God didn't spring this on him and then the sacrifice happened next. Three days to think. Tests, the hard tests that God bring us, brings us requires us to think. We've got to go back over the ground we've learned, over the promises we've heard, over the things we've sorted out in the past. Abraham here was not in the dark. He had three facts to consider as he went forward. The first fact was this, that God could not, under any circumstances, break his promise to bless the world through Isaac. God could not, under any circumstances, break his promise to bless the world through Isaac. It was inconceivable. It was impossible for God to do that. God cannot make a promise he will not keep. It's not possible. God's entire reputation rested on his keeping the promises he made. And Abraham was hanging on to that. He had a grip on it. Then the second thing that Abraham knew is set for us in uh, verses 7 and 8. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Nobody told him that. He reasoned it out. He knew that in the past, God had always accepted the sacrifice of a lamb in the place of the human being, a kind of placeholder. So he reasoned that God would do that again here. But if he didn't, what if he didn't? Even if, this is the third thing, even if Abraham had to slay his son, Abraham knew that in the past, God had given life to Isaac in the first place from two as good as dead bodies. So he could give life again. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, in that chapter about the faith of all the Old Testament saints, Hebrews eleven nineteen says, listen, Abraham reasoned, that is he considered, he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Did you see that? He reasoned, he thought about it. In the end, Abraham could more easily believe that God would raise his son from the dead, then he could believe that God would not 
keep his promise. Walking by faith does not require us to suspend rational thinking. But faith does require us, listen, to prioritize in our thinking the character and the promises of God over everything else. Walking by faith requires us to prioritize in our thinking the character and the promises of God over everything else. It's all we have sometimes when we face difficult circumstances. I suspect, I know that some of you, many of you perhaps, have had some lonely turmoil of a trip past the borders of where your faith had ever gone before. Where you had no choice but to pray through the promises of God, to go mine again from scripture what you know or what you need to know. To think through what you have in Christ, to tighten your grip on God, to search out all the riches of your hope. I can't remember if I told you this, but when I went through a period of quite dark depression, I remembered a phrase that I'd heard somewhere, I don't know where, never doubt in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. There's no Christian worth our salt who has not faced such times. And when they come, listen, we always feel ill-prepared. Nobody goes into those things with flags flying and trumpets blaring and swords you know, swinging. We go in feeling weak. If we're able to trust God, we don't trust our faith. Our faith isn't enough. We've, it's hard. It's very hard. And we're left feeling so inadequate. Now the test. Listen, when God went to test Abraham or when he tests you, he is not testing you to see if you really believe in him. He already knows whether you believe in him. The test is productive. It's productive. We do on, in these testing times what Abraham did. We have to think. We have to pray. We have to dig deep into the faith that we might have been taken for granted. And when we do that, our faith turns to gold. It isn't a test to find out if you're in. It's a test to sharpen what you have, what you know, what God has promised you, and who God is. Well, when the moment finally came, there wasn't any question that Isaac was as good as dead. Abraham was not going to fail to obey. He's not going to lose his nerve. Isaac isn't going to wiggle off the uh, altar. Nothing hinders the knife or the fire, the blade or the blaze. And then at the last moment, at the last moment, God stopped Abraham. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, don't do anything to him. 
Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Third point. On his mountain, God provided the life that saves us. On his mountain, God provided the life that saves us. God saw in Abraham's heart the dedication that a burnt offering required. He didn't have to bloodlet because God knew. God saw his heart. Abraham had given his son, along with all his hopes, entirely to God. And God had accepted that sacrifice. A Bible scholar, Alan Ross, writes, Isaac would be brought twice from the dead. It's a great expression. He would be brought twice from the dead. Once from Sarah's dead womb. And once again from the high altar. This is really the first hint of Easter. Up from the grave he arose. It's in there. The pivotal word in this part of the story, in this whole story, is the word provide. In verse 8, Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. And here when it's brought to this Conclusion in verse 14, uh, it says, So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Remember the song? There's an old one now. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Uh, it's kind of crazy way to pronounce Hebrew, but you get the drift. The word means Provide. That's why uh, the message, the version, that version of the Bible translates verse 14. Abraham named that place God or Yahweh Yira. God, uh, God Yira. God sees to it. That's where we get the saying, on the mountain of God, he sees to it. All because when Isaac was a whisper from death. God saw to it that there was a ram tangled in the thicket which could be given in Isaac's place. God sees to it that there is a sacrifice of total devotion to offer in our place. That's why this is a story with a great future. It's a prophecy story. Another thing. God was very specific about the place. Did you notice that? He told him to go to the region of Moriah, to the place I will show you. They came to the place that God had shown them. They knew that that was the place. 
And finally, in verse 14, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. By the end of this story, this mountain of no particular meaning, it had some, but not so much, had been become the holy, the, the mountain of the Lord. This was the place where Melchizedek came from, by the way. You can look that one up. The region of Moriah was 45 miles north of Beersheba, where Abraham lived. That's why it was a three-day journey. When I was in Jerusalem last November, we were on the Temple Mount. This is uh, where this huge area, it's big enough for a quarter million people to stand, huge uh, area. This is where the golden dome of the, of the Muslims is. And off on one side, there was this little, uh, it was like a little cupola, little stone thing. You look in and there was a little plaque. And it says, this is the region of Moriah. This is where David made a sacrifice to God and then said, this is where I want the temple to be built. And later, it's where, of course, in that same region where Jesus died and rose in the mountains in that region of Moriah. It's important because that's the place where God provided. There's one more thing. It's a wonderful thing that God provided a ram in place of Isaac. Wow, that was a close one, right? But there's something wrong with this picture. I don't know if you see it. If the sacrifice is for God, then how does it work that God provided it? It isn't really our sacrifice if God provides it for himself. Back in 1999, uh, the Christian band Sixpence None the Richer was uh, pretty popular. They had a hit song. And David Letterman wanted him on his show to be the musical guest. And so he invited Lee Nash, who was the lead singer, uh, to sit and visit with him for a couple minutes before they actually played, which was kind of unusual. <clears throat> and he, um, he asked them about their band's name, Sixpence None the Richer. And she said this, it comes from a book by C.S. Lewis. The book is called Mere Christianity. A little boy asks his father for a sixpence, which is a very small amount of English currency, to go and get a gift for his father. The father gladly accepts the gift, but he also realizes that he's not any richer for the, trans for the transaction because he gave his son the money in the first place. He bought his own gift, Letterman clarified. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard this? Wow. That's right, she said, pretty much. I'm sure it meant a lot to him, but it's re he's really no richer. C.S. Lewis was comparing that to his belief that God has given him and us the gifts we possess, and to serve him the way we should, we should do it humbly, realizing how we got the gifts in the first place. And chief among the gifts we got was our salvation in Christ. That's what God did for Abraham. God gave him the sacrifice to give back as a symbol of his own heart. 
Abraham was prepared to give his own son. He would have done it. Not even the ram, as it turned out, was his to give. God was none the richer, except that he had enjoyed the total devotion and faith of Abraham. And because Isaac, in whom we were all hidden, was redeemed. That was a close one. One time in family devotions, Martin Luther was telling his wife, Katie, who was a real pistol. She was quite a lady. He was telling his wife and their children this very story. And he said, Then Abraham bound him and laid him upon the wood. The father raised the knife. The boy bared his throat. If God had slept an instant, the lad would have been dead. I couldn't have watched. Luther's wife was aghast. I don't believe it, she said. God would not have treated his son like that. But Katie, he said, he did. This story about Abraham and about God and Isaac, it all runs counter to all our instincts, doesn't it? It's mind-boggling. It's confounding. It's a reason some people can't believe it. It's just too hard to believe because they don't understand. But what is foolish to men is the wisdom of God. These truths have remade the way we see ourselves as God's people and our future in Christ. Two verses that now bring this back to us. One is from Matthew where Jesus told us Whoever wants to be my disciples, disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. All of us, maybe right now, but regularly, are required by our faith in God to sacrifice, to die to something, to give up something, to take up the cross. Often it's what's inside of us. Romans 12 begins, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, to offer your bodies, your very selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. What we do here and sing, it's just a taste of real worship. Giving ourselves is the real deal. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you're ready for the test. Someone has said the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> true for me. So this morning I challenge you and, my, and me, let's think about where we are in terms of our devotion to God. Let's step into the sacrifice of Jesus gratefully that he has proven his total devotion to God and we were in him. I don't have to do that. But I do need to be a living sacrifice. I do need to take up my cross 
to follow Jesus. Amen.